I'm reaching back into the archives this morning and pulling out a message that was preached some years ago. So those of you who have been here for a while may have heard this, but I just feel like the Lord would have us think about it again. We've, we've kind of reached back and remembered that it's still just very close to Christmas, and now I want us to shift gears and look forward and remember that it's almost next year. And I want to talk to you a little bit about today, uh, kind of about a New Year's type thought. So, Second Kings chapter 20, just have your finger there, we'll get to it in a minute, but let's pray first. Father, we pray that you'll guide and direct now as we look at your word. Wonderful music we've enjoyed this morning, Father, as we've tried to worship you the best of our ability in song. Uh, we've remembered the broken body and spilt blood of our Savior around the Lord's table. We've fellowshiped with one another. And now, Lord, we turn to your word. And, Father, I pray that you will guide and direct as we do that. I pray you'll fill me with your spirit. Help me, Father, to preach as you would have me to, to say the things I should, as loudly and clearly as I should. And I pray, Father, you'd protect me from saying anything I ought not. Help this to be your word today and nothing more. And I pray the Holy Spirit would teach all of us. I pray that we'd all have ears to hear. I pray we'd respond. I pray we'd be convicted if need be. I pray, Lord, we'd uh, repent if need be, whatever it is that you'd have us to do. And most of all, Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, who's never come to the place in their life where they trusted him, uh, if they have any doubt about that, then, Lord, I pray today they'd hear the gospel somewhere in this, somewhere in the, in the songs they've already heard, and that uh, they'd come to Christ today. So, Lord, whatever you want to do in each of our lives, do it now, I pray, and use this time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask the question this morning, what if you knew? What if you knew that 2020 would be your last year on this earth, and that in 2020 you would be standing before the Lord? What if you knew that? Would it make a difference in your life? Most of us have lived long enough to know that uh, statistically it's pretty obvious God may call one or more of us home in 2020. What if you knew that would be this year for you? Would it make a difference in how you live? The fact is Jesus may very well come back in 2020. Even if he doesn't call us home by death, the rapture could occur at any moment. I am convinced that the trumpet is tuning up even as we speak. The signs are so strong that the rapture is going to occur soon. What if you knew that he would split the eastern sky even, you know, within the next little bit? Would it make a difference? I wonder, would your priorities in your life be any different? How about your activities, your concerns, the things that you worry about? Would it be affected by that? What about your prayers? Would you pray any differently if you knew? And what about your money and your finances and your business dealings? Would you spend your money and invest your time and your, and your efforts differently if you knew this would be the last year? Would you organize your minutes differently if you knew this was the last year? Would your conversations with family and friends take on any kind of a different tone if you knew this was your last year? Would it make a difference? What if you knew? Would it make a difference to you personally? That's one way to look at this. Another way to look at it is, what about us as a church? Here we are. We're entering into 2020 as a church. We have goals. We have thoughts. We have plans. What if we knew that this would be the last year that uh, this little 
Friendship Bible Church was going to be together serving the Lord in this place? Would it make a difference in our plans as a church or our goals for that year? Would our programs change? Would the way we use God's money to reach our world change? What if you knew? If you knew this was the last year. Back when I was in high school, I think it was about that time that I learned about a, a thing called biorhythms. Anybody ever hear of biorhythms? I don't know if anybody ever talks about those things anymore, but I remember, I remember learning about them and being mildly for a period of time fascinated by them. I looked them up to see if there was any definition of them still around or if I had just made it up in my mind, but apparently no, there is actually a definition. The all-knowing Wikipedia has this to say about it. According to the theory of biorhythms, a person's life is influenced by rhythmic biological cycles that affect his or her ability in various domains, such as mental, physical, and emotional activity. These cycles begin at birth and oscillate in a steady sine wave fashion throughout life. And by modeling them mathematically, it is suggested that a person's level of ability in each of these domains can be predicted from day to day. Now, that doesn't sound very interesting. That sounds kind of obtuse. But here's, as I understand the theory, here's how I understood it then, and I think it's still correct. You can chart your biorhythms as three different sine waves. You have a physical biorhythm that's a sine wave that repeats every 23 days. You have an emotional biorhythm that repeats every 28 days. And you have an intellectual biorhythm that repeats every 33 days. When you encounter a day where one or more of these sine waves happens to be at the peak, well, that's a good day for you in that area. You know, if you are pursuing some intellectual pursuit and your sine wave is up here, your intellectual sine wave is up there, according to this silly theory, then that's a good day for you intellectually. You're an emotional high when, you're in, when your emotional sine wave is up. And so when they're at their peaks, those are good days. When those waves hit the bottom, the trough, just the opposite. That's a bad day. You're down in the dumps. You're stupid. You can't get anything done. It's just not a good day. Uh, those are the days you lay around the house in your pajamas all day. They're just not good days. But here's the one thing I remember most about this theory, even when I first was in, encountered it uh, way back then, was that they said when two of these sine waves cross, that was a particularly bad day. And they said, when three of the sine waves cross, that's a really bad day. Because it only happens two times. It happens at your birth, and it happens at your death. Now, even then, as a, a mere youngster, I remember thinking to myself, now, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Mathematically, here's what that tells me, that everybody, every single one of us knows exactly when we're going to die. Because if you do the math on that, you find out that the next time those things are going to cross, all three of them, you would be exactly 58.2 years old. All of us would die at the same time. Hmm. Would it make a difference if you knew that? If you knew exactly the hour of your death? I find it interesting that in the Bible there were some people who did. I find it interesting there were some people that God gave them some indication of exactly when they were going to die or very close to exactly when they were going to die. And I think if we look at them this morning, we can determine, did, did it make a difference in their life? And maybe we can learn something from them. The first one, to me, would be obvious. It would be Hezekiah. Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the kings of Judah. He was one of the best of the kings of Judah. He was a good king in nearly every 
way. Second Chronicles 29.2 says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. The writer to the Chronicles goes on and on with these glowing reports that he gave about him. Hezekiah did throughout all Judea, all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered, Second Chronicles chapter 31. They even went so far as to say in, uh, where is this, Second Kings chapter 18, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah nor who were before him. For he hath held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So Hezekiah, good king, great king, one of the best of the kings of Judah. Such a good king that one of the writers chronicling his life said that there had been none like him before or none like him afterward. Hezekiah's reign is described in three places in the Bible. In Second Kings chapter 18 through 20, Second Chronicles 28 through 32 and Isaiah 36 through 39. We know a lot about him because we have a lot of information about him in those passages. We know when he became king. We know how long he reigned and we know when he died. It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. So he was 25 when he started as king. He reigned for 29 and died. So we know that he died at the age of 54 years old. He's a great man. He's a great king. He's godly. He was good. In nearly every way, Hezekiah is a man to be emulated. And God blessed him. God blessed him in some miraculous ways. It was just a few weeks ago we talked a little bit about Hezekiah. And we noticed that there was a time when he prayed once for deliverance from the Assyrian army. And God miraculously answered his prayer and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers just like that in the middle of the night. All that in response to the prayer of Hezekiah. We mentioned then, by the way, that uh, that 185,000, if you're trying to get a picture of what size that is, how many people that is, the Horseshoe Stadium in Ohio State University holds a little over 100,000 people. So almost double that is what God killed that night in response to just this prayer. And so he was, uh, he was an amazing guy. I don't know about you, but I have a short list of people I want to meet when I get to heaven. Do you have a list like that? There's all kinds of people I want to meet. And, of course, there's personal people on there. I mean, obviously, I want to meet Beth again. I want to meet my grandparents again, things like that. Those people that have touched you in life. But some of these Bible characters. And Hezekiah is on that list. I can't wait to get there. And see him. One of these days, we'll be walking down the streets of gold, and there'll be Hezekiah. And he'll know me. And I'll know him. And we'll just talk like old buddies. And it'll be just a good time. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to think about one particular interesting truth that happened in Hezekiah's life. And that's where I ask you to turn. Second Kings chapter 20. Let's just read the first 11 verses of Second Kings chapter 20. Because I think we're going to see here that in... In Hezekiah's case, he had one thing we don't, any of us have. He knew exactly when he was going to die. Second Kings chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, 
saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add to your days fifteen years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. So they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, let the shadow go backward ten degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. Hezekiah was told he was going to die. And then God miraculously extended his life by 15 years. He gave him a miraculous sign, which I always chuckle a little bit when I read the sign. He says, you want me to make the sundial go down or backwards? And he says, well, it would be easy to make it go down. It would? I'd like to know how anybody could do that. You've got to speed the sun up to do that. Make it go backwards, you've got to stop the sun a little bit. Either way, God did what he prayed for. He gave him that miraculous sign, and Hezekiah recovered, and he lived 15 more years. I think that was exactly 15 more years. I think Hezekiah knew the day that he was going to die. So if our math is correct, let's think about this for a minute. This event that we just read about must have taken place when he was somewhere around 39. He lived to be 54, and so the last 15 years of that would have been the miracle years. And for those 15 years, here was a man who knew he was going to die because God had told him so, and God had given him miraculous evidence to uh, demonstrate that. What if you knew that? What if you knew that in exactly 15 years you were going to die? What if you were coming to the end of that 15 years and you knew when that day was? Would it make a difference? Well, did it make a difference for Hezekiah? I, I, I wonder if it did. We know some things about those last 15 years. We know that many of Hezekiah's great accomplishments took place in those last 15 years. If you go to Israel today and you go to Jerusalem today, there's a thing called Hezekiah's Tunnel that you can walk through. I've been to Israel four times, and not once have they let us go through Hezekiah's Tunnel. I've never understood that, but uh, it's there, and it's a tremendous archaeological thing that he was able to do uh, and accomplish there. I think it was for the, for the delivery of water into the city of Jerusalem, but you can walk through it. It's a big, long thing. We believe he did that during those last 15 years. We know that Hezekiah had at least one son during those 15 years. But it seems, and I don't want to be too dogmatic about this because I'm basing it on just one statement from the last 15 years of this man's life, that Hezekiah became self-centered as he got older. The closer he came to that end, he got, he got self-centered. Let's read a little bit further and you'll see where I'm getting that from. Uh, chapter 20, verse number 12. At that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. 
And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall call, and they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? That last statement is the one that makes me think something happened in Hezekiah's mind. Something happened toward the end of his life, or at least somewhere in those last 15 years, where he had allowed into his heart a selfish lack of concern for those who would follow. Look at that last verse. Isaiah has just told him all this terrible stuff is going to happen. He said, okay, as long as there's going to be peace and truth, at least in my days. Nowhere is this lack of concern for somebody else seen more than in that son that he bore, second or that he had. Second uh, Kings chapter 20 says this, Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. doesn't take a math genius to understand that that 12-year-old boy was born during that 15-year period. And during that time, uh, God... Given, given Hezekiah all this opportunity to raise this child for, for the Lord. And how did he turn out? He turned out wicked in the extreme. I won't read it, but Second Kings chapter 21, verses 2 through 9, tells us he was one of the worst of the kings, one of the most evil ones. So Hezekiah knew. He knew when he was going to die. He knew exactly what was going to be his last day. And in full possession of that knowledge, this man apparently became self-centered. Those last 15 years of his life at least partially seemed to be focused on him, his welfare, his well-being, even to the exclusion of the miracle child God gave him. And I can see it in your faces. You're all looking at me like, you're being way too hard on Hezekiah. And maybe I am. I don't know. The Bible doesn't actually say that he actively sought these results, just that they happened. I accept that. That's true. Maybe I'm being too hard on him. Maybe he did not actively seek his own pleasure at the expense of others. And maybe he did not really neglect Manasseh. I don't want to take it too far. The fact is, maybe, maybe he uh, just didn't pay enough attention. And maybe he just let that stuff disappear and fritter away. And he did not give it the effort that it should have had. I don't know. Regardless of what characterization seems right... We need to learn from Hezekiah. If you knew 2020 was the last year for you, would you spend it on selfish pursuits, as he seems to have done? Would you be more concerned about whether or not there's peace and safety in your own personal world to the exclusion of those around you? Or would you care more about your loved ones? Would you spend your time trying as hard as you could to win them? Or would you just abandon them to perdition and evil, as he seems to have done? With Manasseh. What if you knew? Here's another one. 
Peter, the Apostle Peter. He's another one who's on my short list. I really want to meet Peter. Uh, There's so many that I want to talk to. But Peter, I think of all the ones in the Bible, is the one who's most like me. You remember Peter. He used to open his mouth and insert his foot a lot. It's, just, it's a lot like me. I, I, I can see that. He was impetuous. Jumped in with both feet before he'd thought things through. Well, that's a lot like me, I think. I think I've made a lot of the same kind of stupid mistakes that Peter made in his life. And yet, I, I really want to meet Peter. One of the things Peter is most known for is his infamous betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the story. Jesus had been arrested. He was on trial. He was about to be crucified. Peter was nearby watching the proceedings with a bunch of people uh, seated around a fire, apparently. And uh, a little girl came up to him and asked, aren't you one of his disciples? Don't you know him? And, of course, you know the story. He famously denied her three different times, denied that he even knew who Jesus was. The part that really interests me about that story is not that. That's sad. But the part that I always find most interesting is later on, the end of the story, or as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. After Jesus rose from the dead, he met Peter on the seashore and cooked him breakfast. Can you imagine eating breakfast? Personally prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ. He cooked him breakfast. And while he was there at that breakfast meeting, at the conclusion of that, Jesus restored him to service and restored him to favor and, uh, and, and said some good things to him. And then Jesus said this to him, John chapter 21. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, that's not as clear as it was for Hezekiah. I don't think Peter knew the exact time of his death, but Jesus gave him some pretty good information there. He gave him a pretty good glimpse into the future such that he had at least some general idea of when he was going to die. And I wonder, did it make a difference in his life? Has it made a difference in Hezekiah's life? And I think it did. Peter certainly said that it did. He said, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. That's what he wrote in Second Peter chapter 1, in verses 12 through 15. He knew he was running out of time. He might not have known the exact date, but he knew he was getting very, very close. And so he determined to use that time... By, by, by doing three things, telling them. He said, I won't tell you. And then retelling them. And then he said he wanted to use that time by leaving reminders behind so that they would continue to remember long after his passing. That convicts me. What if you knew that your time was almost up? Would it make a difference? There are those in your life who are lost. There are those in my life who were lost. Would you or I be concerned enough, if we knew our time was almost up, to tell them and retell them as many times as it was necessary until they were saved? Would there be uh, any, any desire in your life to leave something behind that they would remember the truth by? That was Peter's response. When Peter knew about it, 
It's focused his energy. He wasn't frittering away his last years as I think Hezekiah was doing. He got busy about telling and retelling. Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry Jenkins wrote the series Left Behind. I don't know if any of you ever read that series, Left Behind. I foolishly started it one time, and then I couldn't stop. And it's a, it's a shelf of books about 12 miles long, so it took forever to get through them. But the, the whole purpose of the Left Behind series is to describe a particular group of people who the rapture has occurred, and they were left behind, hence the title. And they are sitting in a living room, and they happen to look at a videotape that was left for them to watch after they had uh, missed the rapture. And so they watched this videotape, they got saved, and that's the whole purpose of the whole thing. Now, there's some scriptural problems with that. If somebody has had the opportunity to trust Christ before the rapture, and they've said no, when the rapture occurs, there is no more trusting Christ. Uh, they're lost. That's what the Bible says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But nonetheless, even with that theological error wrong, I always thought that videotape was a pretty good idea. I remember Beth always wanted to do that before she died, and we never did get it done. Something to be left behind. I mean, you never know if someone might see that who never did have the opportunity to trust Christ before and get saved during that time. What if you knew this was the year? Uh, would you be busy telling people about Jesus Christ, retelling those that maybe you've told before? Would you be busy trying to leave something behind so that even in your absence they would know about the Lord Jesus Christ? That was Peter's response. Here's another one. King Saul. Let's flip over here and we'll just read a little bit about him. I only got two more, King Saul and one more. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28, just backwards in your Bible from where we were a few pages. 1 Samuel 28, verse number 3. Here was another man who knew. King Saul. 1 Samuel 28, verse number 3. Now Samuel had died. All, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes. He went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please, conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed 
For the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength. Saul had turned away from God, if he ever knew God in the first place. Some Bible scholars go so far as to say they don't think Saul was actually, King Saul, was ever actually a saved man. But I think the Bible makes it clear that he was. I think he was just a terribly backslidden, carnal Christian. And here we see him at the very end of his life. God has withdrawn his favor from him and has already said that the kingdom is going to go to David. His reign is basically over. And here in this passage, Saul learns this amazing truth. He learns that tomorrow he's going to die. Tomorrow the kingdom will be torn from you and given to David, verse 17. Tomorrow the warnings that God has been giving you for years will come to pass, verse number 18. Tomorrow you and your sons will die and you will be with me, Samuel said. Now that last part, by the way, would not be possible if Saul was not a saved man. That's one of the strongest evidences that he was tomorrow. What if you, like Saul, knew that? What if you knew tomorrow was the day that you were going to die? Would it, make a, would it make a difference? What difference did it make in Saul's life? In Saul's life, sadly, it brought about fear. It brought about terror. He was dreadfully afraid. He was about to meet the God that he had rebelled against all of his life, that he had not served properly as a believer all of his life. He was about to receive the judgment that he had known all along was coming. He ignored God, he ignored his word, and tomorrow he was going to face it. He was afraid. I can't imagine anything worse than coming to the last day of your life as a believer, terribly afraid uh, about meeting God. But that was Saul. One more man and then we'll be done. And that's the Apostle Paul. So we've looked at Hezekiah, we've looked at, uh, who was the other one we looked at there? I forgot. Oh, Peter. And we've looked at Saul. Let's look now at the Apostle Paul. Second Timothy chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The Apostle Paul also knew he was at the end of the he knew his fight was finished, his race was run, he knew he had run well, he knew he had kept the faith, and he knew that the time of his departure was at hand. It was imminent. Just as King Saul had known, and Hezekiah had known, and Peter had known. But unlike King Saul, Peter, or, uh, Saul, Paul, the apostle, was not afraid. This man was not afraid at all. He was able to look forward with hope, and he was able to look forward with reward. And he didn't fear meeting Christ, as Saul felt fear about meeting God. He was a man coming to his end, and his heart was filled with faith and with peace and with joy at the thought of it. So four different guys 
we've looked at. And let's think about what this means to us as we face the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020. Four men, all of whom knew one way or another uh, that their time was up. In Hezekiah's case, we learned that it's possible to make poor use of such knowledge and waste the time that remains. Can't be terribly adamant about that, but I think the case is there. In Peter's case, we learned it's also possible to make good use of the time that remains, to allow the shortness of time to focus our efforts about telling others, retelling others. In King Saul's case, we learned that coming to the end of our days away from God brings us to that time afraid. And in the Apostle Paul's case, we learned that coming to the end, having served him to the end, brings us home hopeful and at peace. So, what about you? Which of those four, if any of them, describes you? Just this morning I was reading in my devotions and I came across this passage in Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel 7, verse 2. An end! Exclamation point. An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land, and now the end has come upon you. What if God were to say that to you this year? What if he were to say that to you in 2020? You know, my prayer for 2020 is that it is the last year. Actually, my prayer for 2019 is still that it's the last year. We've still got a day or two. I'm still praying the Lord comes back in this year. But if not, I'm going to just switch that in my prayer list to 2020. Maranatha, even so come, Lord Jesus. What if he does? I, I, I would encourage you this morning to live so in 2020 that we are focused on what matters. That we don't fritter away what time remains. That uh, we look forward to that meeting. We don't fear it. What if you knew? 